Church. Today begins our Advent sermon series that we have titled, The Mothers of Jesus. Thanks to Tammy Staten for doing our artwork this week. Now, why the mothers of Jesus? Because in the opening of the Gospel of Matthew, which are the very first words of the New Testament, by the way, before Matthew even tells the story of Jesus' birth, he gives this long genealogy that shows how the seed of the gospel that was promised all the way back to Abraham passed from him all the way up from one generation to the next until the birth of Jesus Christ. And in that genealogy, Matthew surprisingly includes five women. They are Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary. There in Matthew we read this. And Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, who is today's mother that we're going to focus on. We're going to skip over Tamar because we covered her this summer in our Genesis sermon series. And because we only have four Sundays for this series uh, this month. It continues, And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. So that makes Rahab, the mother of Boaz, and a great-grandmother not only to King David, but to King Jesus. Y'all, that's a big deal. And so it's good and right for us to be curious and to ask this question. Of all the women that could have been mentioned, why does Matthew include Rahab in the genealogy of Jesus? Well, in order to answer that question, I want to invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to Joshua chapter 2. Joshua chapter 2. You can find that on page 178 if you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs. So there I want to walk through Rahab's story and then answer our question in three ways. I think Matthew includes Rahab. One, because she's a picture of saving faith. Two, because she's a model of good works. And three, because she is a trophy of God's grace. With that said, please stand with me to honor the reading of God's word. If you're not able to stand, please stand with us in your hearts. Since today's passage is so long, I'm only going to be reading a section of it from Joshua chapter 6, verses 21 to 25. Church, hear the word of the Lord. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab, the prostitute, and her father's household, and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Church, the Lord has spoken to us. Let's respond together. Thanks be to God. You may be seated.
Now, in the, fa- in the past few days, many of us have enjoyed this week's annual tradition of stuffing ourselves with delicious food. Can I get an amen? amen. All right. Now, we're used to admiring all the complimentary flavors of Thanksgiving dinner. But do you ever consider all the complimentary textures of Thanksgiving dinner? You know, it's like this. Aren't you glad that we don't just like throw all the dishes of Thanksgiving into a blender and drink it like a smoothie? When I was a youth minister back in the day, we used to get the, the number one value meal from all the different fast food joints, and we blend them up in a smoothie, and you had to drink them and try to guess which one was from where. Aren't you glad we don't do that with Thanksgiving dinner? Jason, there you go, is an idea for youth ministry. No? Too far? Okay. I understand. So texture is just as important to our taste buds as flavor. But the right pairing of those textures, right? So it's not so much if the turkey is burnt to a crisp, like on Christmas vacation. Save the neck for me, Clark, because they're crunching away. But (laughs) turkey that's slightly crisp on the outside, but moist all the way underneath. You with me? What about pecan pie? Like, ain't nobody eating pecan pie because of the pecans. Why? It's all that ooey-gooey stuff down underneath, paired with that crunchy on top. So what other dishes pair two different textures in a glorious way? Come on. Tell me. What'd you say? Sweet potato casserole. You got that crunch on top. You got that ooey-gooey in the middle. Throw some marshmallows in there. Take a nap. All right. What'd you say? Apple pie. pie. Good crust. crust. Amen. Put some ice cream on it. All right. One more. Body. Okay. There you go. We just need to leave. Go have some leftovers. So, what on earth does this have to do with a sermon about Rahab? It's that when you enter into the first two chapters of the book of Joshua you immediately get two very different and yet very complementary textures. Chapter 1 features what I call Joshua the warrior. Now, I know this is the guy from 300, not Joshua, but this is the image I get in my mind when I think about Joshua. The context is that God's Old Testament people, Israel, have been rescued from slavery in Egypt and then refined over 40 years in the wilderness as preparation for inheriting the promised land. Their leader, Moses, has just died, and his successor, Joshua, is commanded to lead the people into the promised land, which will require the Lord going to war with the Canaanite people who refuse his salvation. Now, remember that because otherwise you're going to feel sorry for the Canaanite people and think that God is cruel and evil, but he's given them 400 years to turn from their sin and to turn to him, and they have refused it. And so Joshua 1 pictures this man, Joshua, as God's chosen warrior to battle against Israel's enemies and to be a savior to his people. And so the constant refrain four times in Joshua chapter 1 is be strong and courageous. That's Joshua. Then in chapter 2, the texture is totally different from Joshua the warrior. It features what I call Rahab the weakling. I say weakling because she's entirely on the margins of her society. She's a Canaanite. She's a woman. She's unmarried. She's poor. And she's a prostitute. Y'all tell me that's not weak. 
and the sheer opposite of Joshua. And yet the author of Joshua explicitly pictures this woman as God's chosen weakling who from her helpless state becomes a savior to her family. In fact, some say that the whole reason that God compelled Joshua to send spies into Rahab's city wasn't actually to scope out the land at all. If y'all remember, a great strategy is already given to God's people for how they will conquer the city and the people of Jericho. God had already guaranteed all that. The real reason was specifically to save this woman and her family. That's why spies went in. And to show God's heart for the nations and the most despised among them. That's why we read in verse 1 of chapter 2. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. Now, when you go out obediently in God's mission, you never quite know the places that you might end up. For example, one time in Africa, my teammate and I had, had, had to take refuge in a cave with a natural hot spring that was believed to have healing powers. And the thing was, once we got inside with the locals, they all took their clothes off. <laughs> Young and old. And I know what you're thinking. Did we? Now I'm going to leave you on a cliffhanger there. You can ask me later. The more important thing here, get your mind in the right place. The more important thing that happened, though, was that we got to share the gospel with the whole crowd, naked as they were. You see, when you follow God's Spirit on mission, you're asking Him to lead you to places and the people whom He has already prepared to respond to the gospel long before you got there. You don't know who those people are, so sometimes you end up in places that probably would not have been your first choice. For us, a hot spring, in the case of these spies, a prostitute's house. But it wasn't that they were going to take advantage of Rahab, but more likely, her home was used like a tavern or hostel. And it's probably for that reason that the spies get found out, as we read in verse 2. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. Now I'll pause there just to remind you, you might be getting distracted and saying, Hey, that's immoral. She's lying. But the author here in Joshua is not concerned with the morality of the situation. Okay? He's talking about how God used a woman in the complexity of this scenario to be a savior to her family and to herself. We continue in verse 6. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Now the first thing that I want you to notice about this passage is how Rahab, is, she's the one taking all the action here. Like the author intentionally writes the whole chapter this way. She's taken in the spies. 
She's hiding them on the roof. She's diverting the bad guys. Like, remember, she is the parallel to Joshua in chapter 1. The phrase may not be repeated here in chapter 2. But listen, as you observe this woman leading the scene, say to yourself, my word, that is strong and courageous right there. And my goodness, like it's one thing for Joshua to be strong and courageous. Y'all, he's got the army of Israel with him. He was Moses' right-hand man. He has the full knowledge of God's law. How much more strength and courage is on display when you've got none of those things like Rahab, and yet still you act. This is an incredible person here. The spies, on the other hand, the author displays them as completely vulnerable in the situation. You expect them to be like, you know, away, woman, now we will blow our holy horns, okay? But like, it's more like this. It's like Rahab saying, put those horns away and listen to me. Like, if you want to live, you're going to do everything that I say. And at every single turn, she could have so easily just handed them over. Oh, hands off. I don't know these guys. Like, there they are. Take them. They are completely dependent on her protection and her counsel. And don't miss her sacrifice. So consider the danger here. What she was doing was full-on treason. The king himself was looking for these spies, knowing that this pivoted on the existence of his people. And so, can you imagine what an Old Testament king would do to a treasonous prostitute, along with her whole family? You see, Rahab had completely renounced allegiance to Jericho. The story continues in verse 8. Before the men lay down... She came up to them on the roof and said to the men, which by the way, before I read this, this is one of the longest uninterrupted statements by a woman in the entire Bible. I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. Now before we read this section, we asked the question of why Rahab had renounced allegiance to the king of Jericho. We now see it's because she has given that allegiance to a different king the God of Israel. The very first words out of her mouth here are a confession of faith. She says, I know that the Lord has given you the land. And y'all, that pretty much sums up the whole message that the author is seeking to teach generations of Israelites through the book of Joshua. And yet, it comes from the mouth of a Canaanite prostitute. Now, this might seem unimpressive to us because, as she describes it, like everybody has heard what the Lord has done for his people. 
the Canaanites, they believed in God too. And they shuddered at the judgment that was coming their way. Which gave them every reason then and opportunity to surrender and avoid that judgment. But who was the only one who acted on her belief? This incredible woman. Listen to her appeal to the spies again. She says, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you will also deal kindly with my father's house. The language she uses here isn't just, man, play nice, okay? What she uses here is the Hebrew word chesed, the covenant love that's so often used to describe the heart of God. She says, I have shown chesed to you. Please show chesed in return. You know what that reflects, my friends? A heart that was being changed long before these spies arrived. God had gone before the people of Israel and he was working in a heart that was looking to him. And if that's not clear in her actions so far, consider her intent. She says, show chesed in return to who? To herself? To save her own hide in the situation? No, to her father's house. She pleads, Save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them. Listen, Rahab's desire is not only to gain salvation for herself, but for her entire family. She's like, it's not enough for me to be a recipient of God's covenant love. I want to be a vessel for it too. And that, church, is a changed heart. And when the author finally does show the spies speaking, it's only in response to all she has done and said. Verse 14. And the men said to her, Our life for yours even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned, and then afterward you may go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie the scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away, and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord to the window. So we see the waiting covenant that they strike with one another here. Knowing that if either party doesn't hold up their part, like they will die. But with that said, it all still pivots on Rahab. She's the one who schemes the exit strategy out the window. She's the one who gives them directions for avoiding the pursuers. She's the one who has to keep everything secret. She's the one who has to tie the scarlet cord. 
She's the one who has to convince her family to gather at her house when the army of Israel arrives. And think about this. As the people of Israel would listen to the book of Joshua, y'all, they are anticipating Lord of the Rings style battle scenes. Okay? And yet God's mighty conquest of the promised land begins with what? A despised Canaanite prostitute as the specific recipient and vessel of God's covenant love. This week you know where that took my mind? A New Testament parallel. In the Gospel of John, Jesus is kicking off his ministry. Everybody's pumped because the Messiah has come and he is about to work wonders. And where does he go? Straight to Jerusalem and overthrows the Romans. And I'm headed to Rome next. Get out of my way. No. He heads to Samaria. And in Samaria, he goes to the probably worst person he could possibly have gone to. A Samaritan woman. Married and divorced multiple times. Living with a man that was not currently her husband. And it's to her that he kicks off the revelation that he is the Messiah and that the kingdom has come. And then she becomes the vessel through which proclaiming the good news to everyone in her entire town. Y'all, see the parallel? And if you think that's stretching things too far in Rahab's favor, listen to what the spies say when they follow her directions and make it back to Joshua alive. Verse 24, and they said to Joshua, truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. So like if you remember the last time that spies came back from the promised land and reported to the leader of Israel, like they weren't quite so confident, were they? You tracking with me? But these guys, like, dude, where do they get such a strong and courageous report? It's almost an exact quote from Rahab's speech. The confirmation that over 400 years of God's promises are about to be fulfilled. Who does God choose for it to come through? Yes, Joshua the warrior, but also Rahab the weakling. Listen to what one scholar says about this. God had promised to Abraham that all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Genesis 12, 3. Does it not serve that purpose? That in one of the most nationalistic books in the Hebrew Bible, placed side by side with the choice of a military leader and his initial preparations for battle, is the story of a foreign woman who believed and was saved without arms. Or bloodshed. Y'all, through Rahab, God was putting his abundant grace on display to his people. His heart for all nations, for all who would hide themselves in his chesed. I mean, like if chapter 2 isn't enough, see God displaying it from chapter 6, following the famous story that y'all probably know of the walls of Jericho falling down just by the people of Israel marching around them for seven days. We read this in verse 21. Then they devoted all the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys, with the edge of the sword. But the two men who had spied out the land 
Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her, as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it, only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. So it's not just that she truly becomes a recipient and a vessel of God's salvation. Like she becomes an Israelite. The author's like, yeah, go talk to her. She's over there. You're reading, you're listening to the book of Joshua. You're like, man, this is amazing. Is this woman for real? Like, is this a myth? And the author's like, yeah, like she's over there. Like, go ask her, you know? And if chapter 6 isn't enough, see God displaying his abundant grace from Matthew chapter 1. Rahab marries into the tribe of Judah, and she becomes one of the great grandmothers, not just of King David, but of King Jesus. And if Matthew 1 isn't enough, see God displaying it from Hebrews 11 and James 2. Like this woman shows up from one end of the Bible to the other. Which brings us back to our original question. Why? Why is she included in the genealogy of Jesus and peppered throughout the scriptures? Three quick answers. First, because she's a picture of saving faith. In the book of Hebrews which, by the way, reads like this commentary on the Old Testament, the author is seeking to explain saving faith to his predominantly Jewish audience. And in chapter 11, he gives this long list of faith-filled Old Testament believers, which includes this, if you continue to read down, read down, read down, and you get to verse 31. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient, because... She had given a friendly welcome to the spies. See, the author doesn't shy away here from what Rahab had against her. She's identified as the prostitute. And she's characterized as belonging to a people who were disobedient. But that's the thing about saving faith. It doesn't come from being pious enough to have it. It comes from being broken enough to need it. But let's take that one step further. Saving faith doesn't just come from being broken enough to need it, but believing God's good enough to respond to it. Everyone else in Jericho, they believed that they needed salvation from the judgment that was coming their way. They had melted away in heart. But they didn't believe that the God of Israel would actually give it. Rahab, on the other hand, When she hides the spies in her house, she's actually hiding herself in God's chesed. That's the picture of saving faith that we all need to see. That's why she's in the genealogy. Second reason why Rahab is included in the genealogy of Jesus is because she's a model of good works. In the book of James, James is helping his readers to understand that Faith without works is dead. That is, faith that's in your head, but it never gets into your hands, actually has never taken root 
in your heart. And to explain this, he only gives two examples compared to an entire chapter of examples in Hebrews. And so these two examples, they got to be good. The first one is real good. Abraham, the man whom we refer to as the father of faith. Okay, like there's no greater biblical example you could give. Here's the guy who trusted God enough to leave everything behind to become the father of many nations, even though he didn't have any children and was too old to even have them. And who, when he did finally have an only son, was willing to sacrifice him at God's command. Like, do you really need another example, James? Like, you can move on from this point. Don't belabor it. Apparently to James, yes, you do need another example. Because right after that, we read this. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. It's got to get out of your head and into your hands. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Like, really? Like right alongside the father of faith, you're going to place a Canaanite prostitute? And yet the entire Bible over and over is reminding us that what fell apart in that first man and that first woman can be restored in the person of Jesus Christ so that the next man and the next woman among us who trust in Jesus can be what they were meant to be and more. So right alongside Abraham, you have Rahab, and that shows the power of saving faith. Like, it's no respecter of persons. You can be the greatest of all or the least of all. You can come from a Christian family or totally pagan. Your past can be a point of pride or shame. Either way, you can come, but you have to come. If Rahab, listen, if Rahab had simply believed in her head that God could or would save her, the spies would have perished and she would have been put to the sword like everybody else. Y'all ever heard the story about the person who's stranded on their roof during a flood? It's more of a joke than a story. All right, some of y'all with me? Okay, here we go. So there's a flood that comes. person climbs up on their roof to get away from the flood waters as it continues to rise and rise and rise. So a boat comes by, John boat, says, hey, come get in the boat. Man says, no, I'm praying. I'm waiting for the Lord to save me. He will come and save me. John boat goes away. Police come by, all right? They're in a speedboat. They say, hey, come and jump in the boat. We're here to save you. He says, no, I'm praying. I'm waiting for the Lord to save me. Speedboat goes on by. Waters rise. Finally, at the last second, helicopter flies over, drops down a rope, says, hey, grab hold. We're here to save you. Man says, no, I'm praying and waiting on the Lord to save me. Helicopter takes off. Man dies, drowned by the flood. He's standing before God in heaven. And he's like, God, why didn't you save me? God says, dude, I sent two boats and a helicopter. Like, bro, you got to get in. Come on. Listen, Rahab got in on God's mercy. Her faith moved her to action. And that's the model of good works that we all need to follow. A third reason why I think Rahab is included in the genealogy of Jesus 
is because she's a trophy of God's grace. Think about the concept of a trophy. You win something significant, and so you're given this thing to commemorate it. And it's tall, and it's shiny, and it's not really shaped like anything else in everyday life, is it? So it's designed specifically to do what? To draw attention to your victory. And so I think Rahab is included in the genealogy because to God, she is an unabashedly beloved trophy of his grace. Ephesians chapter 2 doesn't mention her per se, but it might as well, because listen to these words. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He's the author of that faith, beginning to end, working in the heart of his people, moving them to action. And so to us, Rahab should stand off the pages of Matthew, not really shaped like anyone else there, tall and shining, a picture of saving faith and good works that displays God's workmanship, that is his creative handiwork, his beautiful artistry. The theologian Francis Schaeffer explains why this should draw our attention. He says this, Indeed, it is most fitting that Rahab should stand in the ancestral line of Christ. And having been unfaithful to the Creator, is not the whole human race a harlot? We all stand in Rahab's place in the sight of the Holy God. We're probably even worse, for she had little knowledge. There is probably no one reading this book who has as little knowledge as Rahab had when she made her step of faith. It's not that you need to know more today. It's that you need to act on what little you know. And yet, if we do not cast ourselves upon Christ and his finished work, then we are not as wise as that harlot in a heathen land. You see, when Rahab was looking up to a holy God, she was looking forward to his incarnate son. It was possible for her to be this model of saving faith and good works Because the Savior in whom she hid was the perfect combination of those things. Jesus' faith never wavered in his Father's hesed. And his good works never stopped, even despite the threat of suffering and death that eventually became a reality in his life. Earlier, I asked the question, can you imagine what a king would do to a treasonous prostitute? Well, you know the answer. Because you see it in the cross. Where the sinless Christ dies the death that we harlots deserve. Into your hands I commit my spirit, Jesus says, as the last act before he takes his last breath. What is that but an expression of faith to the Father? I'm committing myself to you even in the end. And what is that but an act of good works to say it's yours? Like I'm giving it to you. I'm giving it up because you called me to. Listen, this is the very reason 
why we experience two textures in Joshua chapter 1 and chapter 2. Like, yes, behold Jesus the warrior, strong and courageous to go against our enemies of sin and death. And at the same time, behold Jesus the weakling. He begins as a helpless baby on the margins of society and then ends nailed high on this thing that's not really shaped like anything else in everyday life. And so no wonder God raises his from the dead as an unabashedly beloved trophy of his grace. So this Advent, come! Like, come hide yourself in his chesed. Come and take hold of the scarlet cord that is the blood of Jesus. Are you broken enough to see that you need it? Do you believe that God's good enough to give it? And are you bold and courageous enough to get in on it? Listen, just like Rahab did in the book of Joshua... Jesus lives among his people to this day through the Holy Spirit. So I say to you on behalf of God, like, don't just listen to me. Go talk to him. He lives. Like in a minute when we call people to respond, you're not responding to me or any of the other pastors. Jesus is saying like, hey, I'm right here. Come respond to me. Talk to me. Like, I will let you get in on God's mercy. I'm here. I'm alive. And for all who will do that, whether that's for the first time or simply as an ongoing commitment, this is my aim in feeding you all such a healthy meal on the post-Thanksgiving Sunday. Okay, This is my aim, that you would leave here today included in the spiritual bloodline that's flowing from Jesus. Your name recorded in that book of life along with Rahab. And that you would say with Rahab, it's not enough for me to be a recipient of God's covenant love. Like, I want to be a vessel for it. Like, I want to I participate in this little church that says they exist to display Christ's glory among the nations. Y'all know that we among the nations? Everybody thinks about like, we're Israel and everybody out is out there among the nations. No, we're part of the nations thing. And so you can be a faithful vessel of God's salvation to the nations right here where you live, among fellow people, among the nations who have no knowledge of Jesus and what he's done for them. Not to mention the other many nations that are peppered and spread out within, or those of you who have been called to go and exist among those nations way out there across the seas, or to support those who are over there doing it. Like, I'm inviting you, I'm calling you, like, that's our aim today you to be a recipient and a vessel. Why? Because that is what a changed heart looks like. And so church, come and receive this morning the best meal of the week. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And likewise, he took a cup of wine, and after blessing it, he gave it to his disciples. He said, this marks the new covenant and the shedding of my blood. As often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you're announcing the Lord's death until he returns. Today, church, 
we are announcing this. I'll give you the, the choicest bite here. All right, you ready for it? Get your mouth ready. It's coming. If Rahab can be the ancestress of Christ, then you, church, can be the bride. Take that. Our invitation this morning to come forward to break off a piece of bread and to dip it into the juice, remembering what Christ has done for you and proclaiming in that act what he will do for you. That is, if you are a baptized believer, whether or not you're a member of this church, you're invited to come to the table. There'll be gluten-free available over here on my left, your right. If you're here today and you're not a believer, this is our invitation to you, that you would go talk to him, that you go talk to Jesus, and you say, I now have enough knowledge to realize that i got to act on this. And so I come. I come asking you for your mercy, obeying you, giving my life to you, just like Rahab did, so that I might be saved and so that I could participate in something bigger than my little plans for my life. Would you do that today? This could be the best Thanksgiving and Advent that you ever had. All right? There'll be people in the back to pray with anyone who has any need. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we bow before you. We thank you for this surprising word. One word, really, that we've preached today from the genealogy recorded in Matthew. And yet from that one word unpacks one story that then peppers throughout application in your scriptures for us and our lives to learn from, to be challenged by. We thank you so much, Lord, for this. We stand in awe of what you did in the heart and the life of Rahab and how she continues to testify to us this day and point us to a Savior who himself lives among us in the person of the Holy Spirit and invites us to respond to him. And so in this moment, may we all do that so that we all in this room can walk away as recipients of your salvation and yet also vessels for it because our hearts have been changed like Rahab. Have your way, Lord. Be glorified, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.